Good morning. My name is David Newman. I'm one of the elders here. Um, and I would like to lead us in a time of prayer. Shall we pray? We praise and thank you, O Lord, that you feed us with your word and at your table, grateful for your gifts and mindful of the communion of your saints, we offer to you our prayers for all people. God, we thank you that we are blessed to be a worshiping community. We pray as well for Bethel CRC in Waterdown and the Meeting House, our true city partner. Be present with them this morning in their worship as well. God of compassion, we remember before you the poor and the afflicted, the sick and the dying, the prisoners and all who are lonely, the victims of war, injustice, and inhumanity, and all others who suffer from whatever their sufferings may be called. Lord, we remember before you John Vandenberg we are grateful for his story of your presence in his life, especially in recent days. We pray for continued recovering in his body. We also pray for Joan, give her strength as she cares for him, and also be present with her in her upcoming eye surgery. O Lord of Providence, holding the destiny of the nations in your hand, we pray for our country. Inspire the hearts and minds of our leaders that they, together with all nations, may first seek your kingdom and righteousness so that order and peace may dwell with your people. O oh God, the creator, we pray for all nations and all peoples. Take away the mistrust and lack of understanding that divide your creatures. Increase in us the recognition that we are all your children. O oh, Savior God, look upon your church in its struggle upon the earth. Have mercy on its weakness. Bring to an end its unhappy divisions and scatter its fears. Look also upon the ministry of your church. Increase its courage, strengthen its faith, and inspire its witness to all people, even to the ends of the earth. Author of grace and God of love, send your Holy Spirit's blessing to your children here present. Keep our hearts and thoughts in Jesus Christ, your Son, our only Savior. Amen. Our scripture reading today is from Isaiah chapter 61. You'll find that on page 1157 in your pew Bibles. Before we open the word, let's pray. 
Dear Lord, as we gather again on this beautiful fall morning, we ask you to speak to us through your faithful servant, Chris. Encourage us towards righteousness, to serve our neighbors, and to love justice, and to walk humbly with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are the people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as, so, as the soil makes the sprout come up and the garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is the word of the Lord. Isaiah 61 is part of what scholars call, often call, third Isaiah. It's a portion of the, the book of Isaiah that's written to most likely the exiles who are just about to come back into the land and to those who are living in the land still. And it's important for us to know that historical setting because of this. Those who were left in the land after Nebuchadnezzar had come through with his armies, after the Egyptian armies had been in and Nebuchadnezzar had come back through again, those who were left behind were poor, had no standing, hadn't owned property in decades, if not generation upon generation. They didn't in many ways know how to care for themselves anymore. And they were left there. You can read Jeremiah's account of all of that as, as he watches all the nobles and all the landholders being taken off to a new land, to Babylon. 
And the people who are left are the ones who had no resources to themselves. There's a sense of hopelessness in the land and a barrenness because it's been so war-torn war and, and devastated. Think of some of the images coming out of Aleppo, out of Syria. Buildings utterly destroyed, people famished and hungry. That's the type of background to this text. And, and Isaiah is giving these words to the people to rejoice to celebrate, to take hope because God is going to restore their land. And not only their land, but them. We're in a series right now where we're talking about God's living word. Last week we talked about chesed, a wonderful, untranslatable Hebrew word that talks about God's covenant love, his steadfast love for us, that commitment God has made that says, even if you are faithless, I will remain faithful to you. I will stay with you. Today we're going to talk about Sadiq, which in some sense is a way of saying righteousness, but biblically, as we'll see, it really encompasses God's righteous way of life a way of life we're called to live as God's people. And this passage, as God's promising the people new life and abundant life, he actually is calling them into righteousness. Next week we'll have the break for Reformation Sunday and then for the following two weeks, those first two in November, we'll pick up two more words. Mishpat, which talks about God's justice. It's a restorative justice. And Shalom, which talks about God's vision for a flourishing world. And this morning, we're on Sadiq, God's righteous way of life. All through this series, part of what we're doing is, is taking a look also at our church's vision statement. We talk about being transformed by the gospel, our city and world renewed in Christ. And as I said last week, we're kind of standing on the semicolon in the middle. And, and we start off by looking at, at how the gospel is transforming us. It's good news. But throughout this series, we're going to pivot and look more towards the last half. How God's transformation in us leads to the city and the world around us being renewed in Christ. And we'll pivot a little bit more today than we did last week, and in two weeks a little bit more. And, and when we talk about shalom, we're going to start hearing some of the stories of how God is at work through people in our church as they engage the city and the world around us. You may have seen this slide up as you came in this morning. It was part of us trying to do something just a little different. Uh, the communion table picture is from uh, a conference I was at earlier this summer at Calvin College where they brought together people from, I think it was 18, 19 different denominations, uh, all to celebrate God's goodness together and talk about the different ways we were learning to worship. And we spent time learning from each other about worship. And, and they had this festive communion table set out at every gathering, even though we didn't celebrate communion at every gathering. But it was a, a powerful visual reminder of God's grace and the centrality of the gospel. It also drove home for us this, this verse that, that we've got up there. God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A little later this morning, we're going to celebrate that verse in many ways and the reality that verse points to. That that Christ, who, who had no sin, who was perfect, who was faithful and holy, became sin so that we together might become God's righteousness. Just think about that for a moment. We who are sinful, actually in Christ, are called God's righteousness. It's a powerful gift from God. You are righteous before God because of Jesus Christ. God's righteousness. I want to focus on righteousness and that idea this morning, and and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit here. Sadiq, which is the Hebrew word for righteous or righteousness, has all sorts of different places it pops up in the Old Testament. And here's just some of the ways it's used. It's used to describe honest scales or measurements and honest decisions by judges. So judges who aren't affected by bribery or by looking out at the people and saying, well, they're rich, they've got it together, they must be right. Those who look impartially at the cases before them, they were considered sadiq or righteous. It's also referred to as, as the character of people. So oftentimes it will talk about someone's character as having honest speech or faithful living and quite often tied to the just treatment of their neighbors. So someone who lives well, respectably with their neighbors, they're often referred to as sadiq. In the Psalms especially, Sadiq gets, gets attached to God's character. God is the righteous one. And you will hear praise in the Psalm of, we praise you for your righteousness. And we praise you, righteous God. It, it becomes something that the people of Israel said, you know, this righteousness we're called to in terms of our economics, our scales, our judging, our, our, all of that stuff, our, the way we live with our neighbors, that's, that's not just a good thing for us to do. That's actually part of who God is. God's character is righteous. As you enter into the prophets, the prophets begin using Sadiq, and they use it more frequently, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, to talk about pleading the cause of the poor and the needy in court. So a righteous person who is one who comes alongside someone else who can't give voice to things themselves. A righteous person who comes alongside to defend those who seem to be defenseless. In that context, it's often paired with mishpat, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, God's justice. And it's often in Scripture, all the way through, especially in Proverbs, contrasted with the way of the wicked. Psalm 1 may help us remember that. The end of Psalm 1 ends this way. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And part of what that psalm and and some of the other wisdom literature in the Old Testament are trying to do is say there's really two paths you can walk in life. You can walk a path of righteousness which which kind of imitates God and and takes God's character and says, I'm going to live in such a way that other people see God's character in me. Or you can take the way of the wicked which has nothing to do with God, and and chooses to live for yourself. Those are the options before us. 
way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. You know, if we listen to Scripture as a whole, one of the things Scripture tells us is, folks, we ain't righteous. (laughs) We're not righteous. Romans chapter 3, Paul in this huge section about righteousness and God's righteousness comes to a, a kind of a culminating point and he says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All your religious practices don't matter. You are still sinful. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is really an echo of something that comes up in four different places in the Old Testament, or three different places in the Old Testament, and once also in Romans 3. This simple phrase, no one is righteous. Prophets at some times talk about God looking out across the face of the earth to find one person, even one person who would be righteous and not being able to find anyone It's part of our our Reformed tradition as well that we acknowledge that. One of the places we do that is here in Our World Belongs to God, which is a a testimony that was put together to help us understand the Christian faith. And and it says this in, in the 14th section, Fallen in that first sin, we prove each day that apart from grace, we are guilty sinners. We fail to thank God. We break God's laws. We ignore our tasks. Looking for life without God, we find death. Grasping for freedom outside the law, we trap ourselves in Satan's snares. Pursuing pleasure, we lose the gift of joy. As I was reading that, I was struck just by that, that little summary in, in the, on the left side. We fail to thank God. Much of our sin is really just we're self-centered and we don't have gratitude. We grumble and complain. Hi, how are you? I've had a crappy week. That's kind of our response to people. We want to tell about everything that goes wrong. And we don't live with this, this as sometimes is kind of said as a cliche, attitude of gratitude. We lose sight of thanking God for the little things, for anything. Or we break God's laws It's a long history of using the Ten Commandments to teach us about our sin, that we say the Ten Commandments just as a way of of helping us to recognize the different ways that we sin, whether it's in our words or in, in stealing from others, whether it's in worshiping something else and finding our meaning in someone other than God, whether it's lust or stealing or even murder. We have ways of of disobeying God, of actually breaking the things that God said not to do. And ultimately, we ignore our tasks. If we're busy, caught up in our sins, we're not doing what God has called us to do, which is to create a world that flourishes under God's kingdom and authority. When I say all of this as as background to entering the first part of Isaiah 61 because it's important for us to recognize this is what the people were feeling and experiencing. The prophets for generations have been saying to them, repent, turn back to God, turn back from your wicked ways, return to God's righteous way of living. And again and again the people said, we're going to walk our own way. 
We're going to deny God. We're going to do what we want to. At one point, Jeremiah the prophet is pleading with the people who are going into exile and those who have fled to Egypt saying, don't worship the other gods. And their response to Jeremiah said, we don't care what God does. We're going to worship the queen of heaven. We're going to bake cakes to her. We're going to have offerings and sacrifices to her. We're going to do as we please. And the people left in the land are bearing the consequence of sin after sin after sin, of generation of being separated from God. And there is a hopelessness and a helplessness that is set in them. They're feeling that thanklessness, the breaking of the laws, and the failure to do their own, do what God has called them to do. We enter then into God's salvation. That's really what this Isaiah 61 is proclaiming. It's, it's proclaiming God's salvation. Isaiah 61 is really tied to a bigger picture of salvation, not just physical healing and, and kind of physical blessing, but it's tied by Jesus himself to the mission Jesus is doing. In Luke 4 and in Matthew 11, Jesus references directly this text to say this is the purpose for why he's here. The first time he reads scripture publicly in worship, he chooses these verses out of Isaiah 61 and says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus is saying, he is the anointed one. So while we read this text, we're hearing Jesus' words of saying, this is what I am here to do. And it's important for us to see all the things that Jesus says he's going to do. He starts off with these things. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor. The poor. The ones living in the land. That's what Isaiah's context is. They're the ones living in the land left behind, bearing the consequences of their own sins and everyone else's, and he's going to speak good word to them. He's going to bind up the brokenhearted. Imagine the devastation. Again, think of some of those pictures that have come out of the refugee crisis coming out of Syria. Those pictures that we see and, and we instantly well up with tears and our hearts break and we don't even know what to do. That brokenheartedness. And Jesus saying, I've come for those who are brokenhearted. And Isaiah is saying, this is what God's anointed one is all about. His salvation is going to meet them. He's going to proclaim freedom for the captives. Adds to that release from darkness for the prisoners. He's entering into those places of brokenness and corruption, the places where people have been sent off to foreign lands. That's what's in the minds here of God's people as they hear that word. Who were their captives? They were the ones in Egypt and in Babylon who were being put into bondage and slavery, who were being dragged away against their will. He adds this. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. This anointed one, God's salvation, is, is really to make things right. The year of the Lord's favor refers to the year of Jubilee, the seventh Sabbath year a year in when all debts were supposed to be canceled, and on top of the canceling of debts, people were to be able to return to their homeland. They were to be able to return to the property God had originally given their family to work the land together, 
There was restoration in this. That year of the Lord's favor was, was a reminder that God is at work making all things right. And they were experiencing it once every seventh Sabbath year. The anointed one is to bring things to the point where all is made right again. And it goes on in the, next, in the start of verse 3 to add these things. God's anointed one who's coming is going to comfort those who mourn, provide for those who grieve, and then do something upended. He's going to take those who, who have, have been in the ashes, those who have been suffering in, in the brokenness, the physical brokenness of the world around them, and he's going to give them a crown of beauty. He's going to pour out oil of joy so they're rejoicing instead of mourning. He's going to wrap them in a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Imagine some of the people who have come out of the refugee crisis in the Middle East not wearing the rags and the dirt but being dressed well with joy spilling out of their face and their eyes because all of a sudden they can say God is good. Life is good. It's such a reversal that we have a hard time comprehending it, but that is the promise that God is making to his people. I will restore you. I will make everything new. God's salvation is comprehensive. So often we limit it to just saying God has come to forgive us of our sins. But this text and Jesus' owning of this text speaks of a bigger salvation, a salvation that's meant to go to the ends of the earth. And it's in the context of that vision of a cosmic restoration that God starts to talk through Isaiah in this passage about righteousness. They will be called. They. Who's the they? The they is all these people that God's just redeemed. The poor, the downtrodden, the heavy-hearted, those who have been renewed, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Oaks of righteousness. What a phrase. My first thought is the big oak trees that sit outside and on the escarpment you can occasionally find one. It's all those pesky acorns that you try to rake out of your yard and never seem to be able to get, but the squirrels can always try and find them. It's those things, those big, magnificent oaks. This is what an oak tree looks like in the Golan Heights in Israel. Got this picture off the internet. A guy named Pavel Bursik took a bunch of pictures of of the oak trees that are all around Israel. And, and this is a, a kind of a typical one. There's some that are bigger, some that are older. But this, is, this gives you an idea of it. They often grow out of just the rocky ground. And you bump into them in the middle of all sorts of places. But these oak trees typically grow to about 15 meters tall. They can live a long time. Some of them are known to be over 850 years old right now. They're seen throughout the Middle Eastern context as, as one of the sturdiest woods to use, both for carpentry and for building. All the way back, there's records of, of buildings being built in temples and palaces, especially two types of wood, the cedars of Lebanon and the oaks, the oak trees grabbed from that area. It was a majestic type of wood. Being majestic, it's used for the royal ornaments. 
It's often talked about to symbolize the strength of, of a kingdom or a king. They would put the oak trees on their shields as a way of saying, we're strong, we're strong as an oak. It's also useful for food when needed. There's a bunch of different records that during famines, when nothing else was growing in the land, the oak trees were still producing their acorns. And the acorns would be heated up and roasted and used for food. And the shade tree is often, oak tree is often referenced as a shade and a place for travelers to rest. Some of the acts of hospitality Think of the oaks of Mamre, which are referenced in, in Genesis, where, where uh, Abraham goes out and settles, and Abraham meets the angels by these oaks and meets with God by an oak tree. They also provide significant landmarks. Uh, it was kind of, sometimes they said they, they would give directions by the next oak tree. See that oak tree? Well, you go past that one, two oak trees to the right, and then keep on going. It's kind of a, a different way of marking the landscape. So in this context, this type of oak tree, we have it saying oaks of righteousness. I want to talk about how we get to that idea of oaks of righteousness. Oak trees make acorns. We're there, right? Oak trees make acorns. An oak tree can make more than 10,000 acorns in one year. This is part of why you can't keep your yard clean if you have an oak tree in your yard. 10,000. One oak tree can make 10,000 acorns in a year. Each acorn that becomes another tree, we know the squirrels run off with them, they eat them, some birds eat them. They don't all actually become oak trees. But each one that does become another oak tree makes thousands of more acorns, which in turn make more oak trees that will make thousands of more acorns. You get the idea that it's, it's kind of a multi-generational type vision with the oak tree, that, that the oak tree makes acorns, which makes more oak trees, which makes more acorns. It, it, there's this cycle to it. Ultimately, the purpose of the, of the oak tree is not actually to make acorns. Rather, an oak tree is designed to make a whole forest of oak trees that continually make more oak trees, just like the first oak tree. I listened to a speaker say, this is the heart of discipleship. God has made us to be like an oak tree. In Christ, who was the righteousness revealed in this scripture, we are being made into oak trees which will produce more acorns which then lead to more oak trees being produced. The oaks of righteousness really is in this passage pointing to a reality that goes throughout scripture. It starts with Abraham with this phrase, you have been blessed to be a blessing. That what God gives to us is not meant to stop with us, but is meant to be extended on to others. Or this. This type of question gets provoked by it. Since we have been made into oaks of righteousness, this, this planting of the Lord's through all the work that Christ is doing, since we have been made into these oaks of righteousness to display the splendor of the Lord, question comes, how do we make more oak trees like the first one? One of the ways we might rephrase that is, what might it look like for God's righteousness to become our way of life? 
think back to that passage we, we started the service with and that I brought up at the start here from 2 Corinthians. God made him to be, who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become God's righteousness. So in becoming God's righteousness, what does it look like for us to pass that righteousness along to others? How do we call others into it? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which we read earlier, frames it this way. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance to be our way of life. Even though we couldn't get to God's righteousness by what we were doing, God, in his righteousness through Christ, has enabled us to do good works which will bless others and which will prosper in the world around us. The question coming out of this becomes, what good works has God prepared to be our way of life? We're actually going to dig into that question in pretty specific ways the next two times as, as we talk about uh, mishpat and, and shalom but there is a clue in this passage in Isaiah 61 they will be called oaks of righteousness a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor here's what they'll do they'll rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated they will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations in other words the righteousness that we're called to the righteousness that we're being ushered into through Christ's righteousness in us is to rebuild cities. It's to rebuild those places that have been torn down. It's, it's to pour into the world around us. And I hear these verses, I read them, and I can't help but think back to our vision statement. As we are transformed, as God pours his righteousness into us, our city and world are renewed in Christ. We are turned, our posture is turned towards this righteousness coming in the world around us. A rebuilding of the city. A building up so that the world, long devastated by sin, begins to experience God's renewal. God's new life. As I mentioned, we'll pick up this in more detail. God's justice actually gets into a little bit more of the how do we do this restorative work. And and Shalom gives the longer-term vision of the whole world, not just our individual lives, but the whole world being renewed in Christ. What we have for today, though, and as as we get ready to taste the bread and, and to take part in the cup, God's righteousness given to us, is this. God has sent us, God is sending us, to participate in the same kind of activities that Isaiah used to describe Jesus' ministry. Binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming good news to the poor, coming alongside those who are suffering, rebuilding the city. A way of putting this in context is to think about the parable of the sheep and the goats. Have you fed those who are hungry? Have you clothed those who are naked? Have you come alongside those who are lonely and sick? Have you walked with those who are in prison. The direction of this passage in Isaiah 61 points to that one in Matthew 25. 
The Heidelberg Catechism actually touches on this at one point in question and answer 32. It says, we share in Jesus' anointing. That anointing that's being talked about in Isaiah 61, as we are brought into God's righteousness through Jesus Christ, we actually take on his anointing so that what he was anointed to do, we also are drawn into. Jesus put it perhaps in a very simple way. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That, in a nutshell, is really what Isaiah 61 is declaring. It's saying that just as as God sent Jesus Christ to save us and draw us into his renewal, into his righteousness, we too are being sent into the world with God's righteousness to draw the world into the righteousness that is in Christ Jesus. Invite us to pray. God, this vision that you lay out in Isaiah 61 is a bigger vision than we have time to dig through and pour through here today. It's a vision of your righteousness coming into our lives, of restoring those who are downtrodden, those who are broken, those who are heavy-hearted, those who are bearing the consequence of their sins. And in your grace, you restore us. And in that grace, you also send us. You send us to become agents of your restoration in this world. To live your righteous way again, not by our power, but by your grace at work in us. You turn our hearts to start engaging the very activities that you did. Coming alongside the poor, of proclaiming good news, of proclaiming hope and freedom to those who are caught in bondage. We ask that you would show us this week and in the weeks ahead how we might walk with those who are poor and those who are suffering to bring your grace and your love so that they too might walk in your righteousness. We thank you for this gift of grace. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Invite us to stand as we sing together, Will You Come and Follow Me?